The judgments of God are unrelenting. Because I question the plagues that came against Egypt were not some frivolous events. But God had a controversy with Pharaoh and with the nation of Egypt at large. Because of their harsh treatment of his own people, their iniquity was exceedingly great. Their cup was full. Their account was large. Men and women, we might think and consider that for now over 80 years, the Egyptians had oppressed the people of Israel, and God had patiently borne with that persecution. We can say, truly, the Lord is slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. But now the time had come to recompense. And the Lord would not spare or have pity upon them. And surely all of these plagues show us the reality of what it will be one day to stand before the judge of all the earth. The unbeliever will not stand before an earthly judge, an earthly judge who may be persuaded or can be swayed, but they will stand before Almighty God, whose justice and judgment is according to truth. We've noted the progression in these plagues already. There's a steady advance in the severity of the divine judgment. The first three interfered with the comfort of the Egyptians. But as we moved into the next three, then we ought to note that now God lays his hand upon their possessions. Firstly, as already noted, and we have dealt with it, the sword of insects, the different insects that corrupted the land. The last three, they're going to show desolation and death. More plainly evidencing the direct hand of God that was against them. And you know, there's a little, there's a little thought, a little phrase that we ought not just to pass over. The hand of God. The hand of God is a, an interesting study to consider. It's something that we find in other places throughout the Scriptures. We are brought uh, about to consider the plague of disease that came upon the cattle. And the real cause can be seen if you look at the words of verse 3. It says, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle. And in these instances where we read this phrase, we understand that it is showing affliction and dispensing judgment and destruction. If you turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 5, you'll note the same was to occur there concerning the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. And of course, as soon as they took the Ark of the Covenant, they had not a good time. They were disturbed. They were troubled. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with emeralds, even Ashdod and the coast thereof. There was a pestilence even from that very time that they took the Ark of the Covenant from Israel. But at other times, the hand of the Lord is used to assist, dispensing mercy and blessing. And it was something that David was very aware of. 1 Samuel 24, this time verse 14. And we read there, After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea? Sorry. 2 Samuel. Got it wrong. 2 Samuel 24. 
And verse 14. Here's the right one. David said unto God, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. David didn't want to fall into the men's hands. Hands of wicked and evil men. He rather would fall into the hand of the Lord because he knew that there's mercy with the Lord. And it was the truth that Ezra also was also conscious of. The hand of the Lord is that which dispenses even strength and support when needed. You turn to Ezra chapter 7, uh, just before the book of Nehemiah, and verse 28. The last verse says, And hath extended mercy unto me before the king, and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. And Ezra says, And I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. And there Ezra has the hand of the Lord in, in view as one that strengthens and supports. And I'll just give you one more. It is found in Ezekiel uh, chapter 1 and the verse 3. It says, The word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was there upon him. The hand of the Lord. And men and women, it's better to have the hand of the Lord upon us in blessing and in mercy, supporting us and strengthening us, rather than against us, as it was the case with Pharaoh and with the Egyptians. With that in mind, I want you to consider with me this morning the beasts and the boils. Because you see, first of all, we look here and we notice the disease. That's really what the word at the end of verse 3 means, a grievous marine. The next plague has to do with the livestock of Egypt. That is, will be seen will, was no minor detail. The people were affected. The land was affected. The rivers had been affected and so were the beasts in the field. You'll notice the confrontation here because Moses was commanded to stand before Pharaoh again as he had done so in the past. The commission that God gave to Moses was essentially the same as before. Verse 1, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh and tell him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. He was confronting Pharaoh. The problem that God has with Pharaoh is with his sin. The problem that God has with people today is with their sin. And the problem that God has to deal with or wants to deal with is your sin. And that's why so often the messengers of God are called to address that problem, the problem of sin, and to confront the sinner about it. Now I know there are many preachers today and they'll not even mention the word sin. Our people don't want to hear about that. And so they don't mention sin. If you don't mention sin, men and women, then you don't need to mention the Savior. Because sin is the problem. The Savior is the sin bearer at the cross. And the message that God would have to bring to us is to the problem, your sin, as it was with Moses. I'm standing before Pharaoh. Let my people go that they may serve me. And you'll see the language that is used there in verse 1. Go and tell them. 
going on to Pharaoh and tell him. Is that not similar to the great commission that the Lord has left with his church there at the end of the Gospels, uh, particularly Mark's Gospel or Matthew's Gospel? Uh, We are to go and teach all nations. We are to go and preach the Gospel unto every creature. God tells us where to go and what to say as he sends forth his servants in his service. The one who will be successful, the one who will be faithful, who will not necessarily be the one who has a 300 or 3,000 seater auditorium. But the one who will be successful and the one who will be faithful will be the one who obeys those things. Where to go and what to say. What was the message to Pharaoh? God said, let my people go that they may serve me. He was only demanding what was rightfully his. You'll notice there, they're my people. My people. Men and women in our day, we need to be careful because the precept that is forgotten about amidst the idea that is prevalent and often heard about these days is this, it's my life and I will do what I please. That's the mentality out there. That's the way the world thinks. It's my life. As creator, all of creation belongs to God. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. We read that in Psalm 24 verse 1. And of course as God's people, those that are saved, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price, even the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. And anything we have is because of what the Lord has graciously given to us. And whatever we do, we are to do it as unto the glory of the Lord. We're not our own. Thank God we belong to to the Lord if we're saved. The reason Israel were to be set free were to serve the Lord. Let my people go, we said. That they may serve me. I wonder, have we ever thought of that? Our freedoms, our abilities, our talents, our blessings are given not for the advancement of the flesh, but rather to enhance our service for God. Do we need to examine our attitudes toward our blessings? Sometimes, you know, men and women are guilty. We only see the blessings and we forget about the one that blessed us. And we've seen the blessings last week among the boys and girls and all of those things. But don't forget, it's the Lord that gives us those blessings. If we pray for good health, it is not so that we might pursue more selfish and carnal pleasures. It ought to be that we might serve the Lord better. If we pray not to be in the poverty line, it's not that we might be able to go and to expend it on the things of the world. It is that we might be able to give more to the Lord. Think about the blessings the Lord has given. Think about our attitude towards them. Then, you know, we should note here the destruction that resulted from this plague of disease. But before we do that, I don't want you to miss it. That God again gave time to Pharaoh to repent. Because there's a set time mentioned. The warning was given here and he has a day. Look at the words of verse 3. 
Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in thy field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, upon the sheep. There shall be a great grievous moraine, and the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt, and there shall nothing die of all that is the children of Israel's. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. A set time. Pharaoh had time to escape the judgment. But in each instance where we have come across a tomorrow, he has abused it. And he has misused it. I trust I'm not preaching to someone today and you're like Pharaoh where the goodness of God is concerned in the gospel to your soul. And God has given you another day. But you say it in effect tomorrow. Tomorrow. This plague, as I said, was to cause great destruction. I've read already verse 3 there at the end. There shall be a very grievous marine disease. Especially the cattle. Look at verse 6. The Lord did that thing on the morrow. And all the cattle of Egypt died. That meant two things in particular. The animals, of course, were considered to be important. In particular, to do with their religion. That's why Israel weren't going to sacrifice within the land because it would raise uh, anger against them. They would be offering their animals, they would be offering the sheep, etc. But the Egyptians counted the animals as sacrosanct. And it had to do with their religion. Isn't it ironic that while Pharaoh sought to hinder the people of God in their worship, the Egyptians were now not able to worship because their animals were dying. They were reaping what they were sowing. What's more, losing all the cattle and the beasts meant they lost oxen for their plowing. The camels they were used for to carry their merchandise across the deserts. The horses were, of course, used for the military use. And the sheep were an important part of their income. But by one stroke of the hand of the Lord, the land was reduced to nothing. The labors of the ungodly were as nothing. And through it all, the cattle of the Israelites, they were preserved. For you'll notice again the separation as in the end of verse 4. But of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. Israel were again exempt from this judgment. And with it being prophesied before it was to take place, that only but emphasizes the power of Almighty God. You may remember, I trust, that the last time we noted in verse 31 of the previous chapter concerning the insects and the flies, there remained not one. And I trust that you remember I brought that out in application because it brings us the great truth in the gospel. When a sinner seeks God in salvation and the blood of Jesus Christ by faith is savingly applied in the heart, And not one sin remained. Not one. We're cleansed. We're accepted in the beloved. We're justified by God. We could use all of those words. God cleanses away every sin. There's not a spot that remains. Not one sin that remains. If there's one sin that remains, man or woman, young person, then you're not going to heaven. Because nothing that defileth shall ever enter in. 
But what a glorious truth that is. And in the separation of the livestock of Israel in this plague, another gospel truth is revealed to us by the phrases that are used. Come with me and see it. Look at the words of verse 4 at the end. And there shall nothing die of all that is the children of Israel. Verse 6 at the end. But of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. Those two little phrases. Nothing shall die of all that is the children of Israel. And the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. And those words remind us of the eternal security of the child of God. Of all whom the Lord saves, not one shall perish. Not one. John chapter 10 and verse 28 says this. That great chapter of the shepherd and the sheep. He says, and I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And you see where he says, I give unto them eternal life. That's a present possession. That's not something that you will get when you get to heaven. That's something, child of God, that you have now. In salvation, at the point of our conversion, the Lord gives us eternal life. Eternal life. And they shall never perish. I want you to grasp that. And I want you to grasp this because there's a whole lot of theology and doctrines taught in many churches and they don't believe this. They shall never perish. If you had a car out in the car park that would never go perishing, no, no rust would ever occur, you would have a, a prime asset, wouldn't you? If you had something in the, in the kitchen, ladies, that would never perish. Well, you have eternal life, and God says of you, you shall never perish, neither shall any man, and man there, you'll see it, any man is in italics, neither shall any devil, never, neither shall any fiend pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. You see the eternal security, child of God, that we have, we're in Christ's hand, and we're in God's hand. And the Lord says we shall never perish. All for whom Christ died on that cross shall never perish. That's the thought. That's the glorious gospel truth that is brought out and we're reminded about. Even through those little phrases, not one whom the Lord has died for and shed his blood for on the cross shall ever be lost. Those who are genuinely saved in Christ shall never be in hell. I believe that because I believe the word of God teaches us that. No one shall perish in their sins and lost eternity who is in Christ. Why? Because in Christ we are eternally secure. I wonder have you this assurance this morning. Your disease called sin is being dealt with by the only Redeemer once and for all on the cross of Calvary through his work of atonement and you are safe and secure in his hands. That's what it is to be saved. We're going to move on. I want you to see the boils here. 
We've looked at the beasts. We're told that Pharaoh sent to check out the word that Moses spoke about the cattle of Israelites. He had told them, not one of the Israelites' cattle will be dead. You'll notice verse 7. Pharaoh sent them, behold. Think of this. There's not one of the cattle of Israelites dead. He sent a messenger. And it proved to be true what Moses had said. But even though that was the case, even though it proved to be true, yet he still was hardened and he rejected the word of God as many do today. What followed was another plague. And one without warning in verse 8. Aaron was merely to take a handful of dust or ashes and Moses was to sprinkle them into the air. Won't you notice the place? Verse 8 it says, The Lord said unto Moses unto Aaron, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the, the furnace. There's a definite, definite article there. It's not just any place. It was a specific place. It could either have been one of the brick kilns or else probably more likely it was a place where the sacrifices were offered. Maybe under their false gods in an attempt to avert these plagues. Whatever that place, Pharaoh knew the place and Pharaoh was nearby. He would see the very beginning of this plague as those ashes were taken by Moses and they were threw into the air. God was going to use this furnace to cause the Egyptians to suffer just as the Israelites had suffered under their hand. You'll consider the pain that this plague caused. There's no opportunity for Pharaoh to escape here. You know, he had been given opportunity before, but he had rejected it. And so for one who continues to reject God's grace, there will be nothing but sudden judgment. And this plague came in the form of boils upon man and upon beast. You'll notice the verse 9. And it shall become dust in the, uh, all the land of Egypt and shall be a boil breaking forth with blames upon man and upon beast throughout all the land of Egypt. This plague attached itself to the bodies of the Egyptians as boils, or maybe we would think upon them as Ulcerous sores covering them. And there's another correlation between their behavior because when the Egyptians practiced their religion, they would have taken the ashes of the offering, they would have thrown them in the air and as a means of blessing. If those ashes fell in anyone then, they were considered to be very fortunate and blessed. But what was considered as a blessing now suddenly was a curse to them causing those boils to break out on the people. They thought much about the purity of their bodies, much less about the purity of their behavior. I suppose there's no difference today. For people are more concerned about sickness and germs physically than they are about filth and sickness spiritually or mentally. But you know, men and women, the scriptures remind us of the condition of man that it is worse than he ever realizes. Because we read in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, from the sole of the foot even unto the head. There's no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. There's a picture of the total depravity of man. There's a picture of of what we are by birth and by nature and by practice from the sole of our foot to the crown of our head. There's no soundness in it. You see, I want you to notice the prevention that is noted in these verses. 
Verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. There's mention again here of the, of the magicians. At the end of the first three plagues, they could no longer imitate those plagues. Their confession was, this is the finger of God. They told Pharaoh that. And now at the end of these three plagues, they stand no longer before Moses because they were covered in their flesh with these boils. The Egyptians, as I've already emphasized to you, they put great emphasis on bodily cleanliness. And that meant people who were defiled in any way, they could not perform their religious rites. Hence the reason why the magicians and those others who were worshippers could not stand before Moses. I believe we can take a great comfort from that. Because, men and women, there are the enemies of the gospel. And the enemies of the gospel despise the servants of God. And they despise the work of God. And they mock the work of God. That's what many are about today. They mock what the believer, what the Christian believes in and the work that they seek to do. Yet the day is coming when God's servant is revealed as standing and all the enemies of Christ will no longer. You might picture Elijah. Remember Elijah went up to the Mount Carmel and the great prophets of Baal. And they were asking, well, who is the Lord God? And the God that answered by fire, he will be the God. And of course, all the false prophets of Baal, they jumped about and they went through their, their, their ritual and all the rest of it and they couldn't call down. They cut themselves. There's great uh, a play on it. There's a great performance. But there's no fire. And Elijah rebuilt the altar, put the wood in order and prayed. The fire fell. And men and women, if you read the end of that chapter, it's Elijah that is found standing and all the prophets of Baal are slain. It brings to us surely the words of the psalmist as he opens the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 verse 5 says, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The days of the enemy are numbered. And in the end, only the servants of God will be found standing. Where will you be found standing on that great and final day? Where will you be among? With Christ on high, looking over life's history. And then you'll be able to say, Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not to then, how much I owe. Is that where you'll be? Standing amongst the redeemed of the Lord. The magicians couldn't stand any longer before Moses. False prophets, false religionists. 
you have the boils. I want you to notice finally the reaffirmation here. There's a verse that states that God was keeping his promises. Verse 12, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. God keeps his word. He had promised Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. And he was doing exactly that. And dear people, when God hardens a heart, then it will be permanently hardened. Matthew Henry, you've heard me mention him before, he's a commentator. He said this, let us dread this as the sorest judgment a man can be under in this side of hell. If God hardens a heart, he's as good as lost. That's a solemn thought. It's hardened permanently. What follows in the next plague? And we'll not look at that this morning because before the detail of that next plague is revealed, there's a number of verses here where God reaffirms his plans and his purposes and which considers the plagues that were still to come. The demand upon Pharaoh hasn't changed. Let my people go, that they may serve me. But consider what the Lord's servant says concerning the future plagues that are still to come. There's mention made here of the Lord's power. Verse 14. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. The plagues to come will have as their target the heart, the servants, the people. And while they had suffered somewhat already, that suffering was going to be increased even to the point where some would die. And the plagues to come would go to the heart of Pharaoh. Notice the words in verse 14. Thine heart. Pharaoh, these plagues will come to thine heart. He would have wrestlings in his heart as never before. He would make confessions and concessions that he would never have done at the start, but through it all, yet his heart would only grow the harder before the Lord. But what he was facing was the power of God. Verse 15 says, For now I will stretch out my hand, that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. The power of God will be unquestionable. He had the power to smite Egypt when and whatever way he liked. He also had the power to cut off Pharaoh altogether. And when we're thinking about Pharaoh, you're thinking about a man who thought he had power. And you know, there's earthly rulers today and they think they have power. You just think of Putin and what he's at over there in Ukraine. Or some of these other guys. And they think they have power. And Pharaoh thought he had power. And he thought he was powerful. 
And at times in the past he had exercised that power against the people of God. But the tables are now turned and these plagues would just show how powerless he really was because these plagues were coming against his own heart. And God reaffirms that he is God and that there is none else beside him. There's not there's none like him in all the earth. Can I ask you something? Do you ever really consider the power of God? Not just in creation as we see it all around us, but power to do what he wants, what he wills. For in him we live, we move, and we have our very being. He giveth to all life and breath and all things. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, He upholdeth all things by the word of his power. Those galaxies, those stars. And the saints are marveled at them. And sometimes, oh, we'll find a new star. And God upholds it all by the word of his power. You know, men and women, I think we've lost that. We certainly have lost the fear of God in Ulster. And the fear of God is parallel with the power of God. God can speak the word and it shall be done. And you know, thank God that includes his word of salvation. He can speak the word to our heart this morning in this congregation and save you before I get to that door. That's the power of God. There's also reaffirming here of his purpose in these plagues. Verse 16. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up for to show in thee my power. And that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. The plagues in the future as with those that already had occurred previously would instruct. They would give testimony about God. For people throughout all the earth would learn. Would learn about God through these plagues. These plagues are still talked about. And as for Pharaoh, he was just an instrument in God's hand. He was the one who had provoked these plagues. He was raised up that the power and purpose of God might be seen. God used the evil of Pharaoh to glorify him. Don't we read of the psalmist where he said, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. Pharaoh, I have raised thee up for to show in thee my power. And you know, men and women, I can't read that, but I'm drawn to consider Calvary. For there they despise the Christ of God. There they despise God's chosen servant. There they mocked him. And they put on him that royal robe. And they placed on his head that mock, mock crown of thorns. And they pressed it into his brow. And their evil and wicked men did their best. Or we would say did their worst. And by taking the Savior and nailing him to a Roman gibbet. And they thought that's the end of him. But what in effect they were doing. Was fulfilling God's plan and purpose in redeeming lost sinners unto himself. And you know, if I want you to turn to Acts 2, because Acts 2, Peter brings it out in his preaching on the day of Pentecost. Peter gets them 
to Calvary. He gets him to the cross. And any preacher worth of salt has to do and will do. Acts 2, and the words of verse 22, Ye men of Israel, you just picture this, he's preaching in Jerusalem, the place is full from all dialects and every different area of the country because they're there for the religious feast and his opportunity as God's Spirit is poured out upon these men and he preaches, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't preach about himself. He's not the head of the church. He preaches Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Those are big words, but it simply brings us back to eternity in the past. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, he was nailed to the cross, not because you put him there, but because it was God's plan and purpose from eternity past. They were raised up to do it. Verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should behold another. He's not dead now. He's raised. He's living again. Today, he is highly exalted. He he is awaiting that day when all his enemies shall be made his footstool. Do you see, men and women, how God's plan and purpose was fulfilled at Calvary? They thought they were getting away, getting rid of him. Away with him. Crucify him. And Peter brings the truth home to him. It was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that you have taken this man, this Jesus of Nazareth. I just want to close by showing you how the pride of Pharaoh here is also reaffirmed. Because 17 verse 17 says, As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people, that thou wilt not let them go. Moses is standing before him. He gives them God's message. The problem with Pharaoh was his proud heart. And Moses denounces it. As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people. Pride is a common problem with mankind. It caused Satan's downfall because he said in his heart that he would exalt himself above even God. Isaiah 14, is it? It was seen in the Garden of Eden and the fall of our first parents. It's a problem in every age. It's a problem even within the congregation of God's people. How often pride can raise its head. How often pride seeks to be exalted above another. You want the acclaim and you want the applause and you want the pat on the back. And it's because of pride. And men and women, what hurt is caused because of dirty, stinking, rotten pride in the church of Jesus Christ. Dear people, when that temptation is presented, 
And you know your own heart. That temptation is there. Then think of Christ. Who humbled himself. And became a servant. Was obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. And when that sin of pride raises its head, please remember the exhortation of Peter. Or Peter thought he would never deny the Lord, you remember. He was full of pride. He was brought down very low, but he learned the lesson. For we read in his little epistle of 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 and 6, listen to this. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you. Be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Lance the boil of pride by God's grace in your life. Let God do the exalting. Let God do the lifting up. May God enable us to be usable in his hand in these days for his glory's sake. I trust the Lord has brought a little word to your heart through the beasts and the boils. We read about here even in this passage. The Lord bless his word to our souls this morning.